0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be together. Uh, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. So, if we've not met before, uh, I want to welcome you and say uh, thanks for being here. I hope you'll stop by, as I mentioned earlier, the Connect Center after the service, so we could meet you uh, personally and, and welcome you. But thanks for thanks for being here on this this Palm Sunday as we uh, as we launch what is commonly known as Holy Week, which begins today and culminates. Um, Next Sunday with Easter, Easter Sunday. So we uh, hope you'll be back uh, for that as well. Um, I want to today talk about the theme of Palm Sunday. We'll look at a passage in a moment, but before we do, I want to ask you: Have you have you ever had an experience? I know you have, where where you say, "Wow, I, I didn't see that coming," um, or maybe you say, "Wow, we we never anticipated." that would happen. Or, you know, who would have thunk that uh, that would be the situation that would go down? You know, one example of this, a very minor example, a very trivial example from uh, the world of sports would be the, the current March Madness tournament. So maybe you're tracking that or maybe you have tracked that Uh, If you don't or if you don't know anything about it, for some people, it's a very significant thing. And they sort of play along. You've probably heard of this, but they play along by taking the tournament bracket, starting with 64 games and, or 64 teams rather, and try to predict who's going to win each game and predict who's going to end up in the final four, predict who's going to end up the final two, and then win the championship. And uh, so this year, um, the tournament was unusual because of the amount of upsets, and it was one of those situations where uh, sports fans would say, wow, we didn't see that coming. Nobody saw that coming because all the first seeds were out a long time ago, all the second seeds are out, all the third seeds are out, and there's a fourth seed uh, playing uh, UConn, and there is a fifth, okay, wow, okay. <laughs> Somebody from UConn? You, you went there. Okay, well, congratulations. Uh, you guys made it, and there is a, the fifth seed is San Diego State, a fifth seed, they're in it. Okay, we got people that went to San Diego State. Um, so uh, at any rate, they're playing, and nobody really saw that. So uh, I do bracket, do a bracket or brackets plural every year, and uh, did, we had family, in-house family uh, bracket competition this year, so all the kids, in-laws played, all the, and all the grandkids played as well. And our tournament was essentially over last weekend because maybe you're like me and like my whole family, essentially, that we didn't, get the, didn't pick anybody in the Final Four. All our teams were out uh, earlier, so we didn't pick the Final Four uh, except one of us in our family. And uh, so we, we had different people in our family took different approaches. Some know about basketball and uh, did a little looking at the teams and used a little bit of basketball knowledge to predict what would happen? One of our family members used artificial intelligence and picked the whole bracket, and they are way down at the bottom. That did, did, did not work. Um, but one person still, in my family has a team alive, and it is my two year old granddaughter, Lydia, who is smarter, evidently, than most basketball prognosticators. Uh, and is smarter than artificial intelligence. So if you worry about artificial intelligence, and admittedly I do at points, uh, just realize it's not better than a two-year-old when it comes to predicting who will be in the final four. So uh, back here on my left, she picked UConn to win the whole thing from the beginning of the tournament before anything, two years old, and her, her basketball wisdom was really insightful. Uh, this is this is what she said uh, I pick Yukon she didn't even know what that meant probably but she said I I like Yukon because Yukon sounds like unicorn and and I like unicorns so uh, that worked and she's in the finals and tomorrow she could, she's already won we're all out so she has won the family tournament and will <laughs> will win the prize uh, because of that and so we're all sitting here my whole family could say wow we didn't see that coming except Lydia. She saw it, uh, but the rest of us. The event we're looking at today, and really all of Holy Week, um, this is a theme that would actually uh, match Holy Week. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody really understood what all was happening, and as we read today about Palm Sunday, we're going to realize that the disciples, it's in the text, the disciples didn't even know what was going on. Those closest to him after the resurrection said, wow, We didn't see that coming. But at the time, they didn't even know what was going on. So we're going to read uh, this account of Holy Week and uh, see how what the Lord had in mind is really no one else had in mind what he did. They didn't see his plan and his mission unfold for the last week of his life. And it starts in John's account in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. It's interesting as well that... um, each of the Gospels present different angles or different pictures of Jesus' life. Uh, this is one of the few events, the triumphal entry when Jesus comes in the last week of his life. This is one of the few events that's in all four Gospels. So that, that kind of signifies its, its importance to us. Uh, so here we go. John 12, uh, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone out after him. In this section, we we see that Jesus is a is a humble king uh, who comes to liberate his people. But he comes to liberate them in an unexpected way through his death. And his resurrection. So, I'm gonna talk about the scene, the scene of what's going on here. Then, I'm gonna talk about the king, who is the, uh, at the heart of the scene. And then, I'm gonna talk about the message. What is the message of what's going on here? And uh, what does it mean for us? What does Palm Sunday mean for us today? Well, here's the scene it's Passover in Jerusalem. So, there are three feasts that people went to Jerusalem to participate in. Um, and, and Passover is one of them. It was the time they remembered God had delivered them. Uh, out of Egypt, out of slavery. This will be the last week of Jesus's life. So, it's so important what we call Holy Week that almost half of John's gospel he, we get to the last week in, in John 12. It goes through John 20, through 20. There's 20 chapters, but by the 12th chapter we're into the last week of his life, which shows the importance of what's going on. The passage begins in verse 12 saying, a large crowd had come to the feast, to the Passover. A large crowd. Now, estimates vary. I've looked at a number of scholars and they're they're, they're really broad, what they estimate and, and what data they use to estimate. But probably it's safe to say upwards of a million people are gathered in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas for uh, pen, uh, for uh, the Passover. And the reason this group is here this year, there is a buzz to this year's Passover. And the reason is told to us in verses 17 and 18. It says in verse 17 18, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So as Jesus is coming in, riding on a donkey into town in this triumphal entry, the reason everybody is there with focus on him, the reason they're coming out to meet him is because of what he had done for Lazarus. So in John's account of the, uh, of the triumphal entry here of what we call Palm Sunday, uh, of John's account, it is intimately tied to what he did for Lazarus. In the previous chapter, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is a friend of his, and he's been dead a few days. He's in a tomb. He's been wrapped. I mean, he's, he's, he's gone, and uh, Jesus raises him from the dead. So we read that in the previous chapter. In this chapter, right before the verses I read to you about the triumphal entry, uh, we see that, uh, that Jews had been going out to Bethany before Jesus gets to Jerusalem. Jews had been going out to Bethany to see Lazarus, to see if this guy's really alive, and presumably to hear his testimony about being dead and then coming back to life. So these are the verses immediately before the triumphal entry, verses 9-11. to It says, uh, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there in Bethany, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So it says that he raises him from the dead. He's in Bethany on his way to Jerusalem, and people are coming out to see Lazarus, and his testimony is so compelling that Jews are converting and becoming followers of Jesus. And it says that the religious leaders say, we got to kill Lazarus. Not only do they want to kill Jesus by this point, but they want to kill Lazarus because his testimony is leading people to Jesus. And then they come in and we find everybody went out to meet Jesus uh, to see if this thing was true. They all wanted to see the person who had raised Lazarus from the dead. So there is this frenzied excitement this year at Passover. And the crowd, based on what they've heard, have decided that Jesus is, in fact, the promised king of Israel, that he is the Messiah, the one sent in their minds to, to free Israel from Roman oppression. So Israel at this time lives under Roman occupation. They rule over them, and they are being oppressed. They, they lack freedoms that they would have if they were completely self-governing, and so they... They want to be free. The cry of their heart is to be free from Rome, and they believe that Jesus is the Messiah who's going to give them that freedom. And the way we know that, uh, well, there's a number of ways, but one way we know that is that they show up with palm branches, to welcome him as he comes into town. Now, interestingly, again, John is the only one that mentions palms. When Aaron uh, read the call to worship this morning out of Matthew, it said they brought branches, I think it said. So the other, the other gospels say they brought branches. John tells us, however, that they brought palm Branches. the The other passages tell us that they laid their cloaks down when Jesus came in and rode over them, which is true. Both these are not uh, these are both true at the same time, right? They both happened. So the, the, they laid down their their cloaks down, but here he says they laid down palm uh, branches. So they had these palm branches and were celebrating, and that's significant because the palm leaf. Uh, was a national symbol of Israel. It was functioned almost like a flag. Uh, it was a symbol uh, for Israel, but it particularly was a symbol for military victory, because in the in the second century BC. So from this time, it would have been about 200 years uh, prior to this uh, ish, 200 years ish. Um, they, uh, they, they, Israel was freed from the Seleucids, who were Greeks, who were trying to ultimately impose Greek culture upon the people of Israel. They desecrated the temple. And uh, a family of leaders freed them named the Maccabees. And uh, J, uh, Judas Maccabeus, was raised up as a military deliverer, and he fought off the Seleucids, freed Israel, and they celebrated uh, through music, and they celebrated with palms. And so these palm leaves symbolized, hey, this, this Judas Maccabeus and the other leaders, they freed us um, from the rule of another group of oppressors. And so that event of being freed, we know now as the, uh, the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah is what it is called now. But when it, in that day, they celebrated with palm branches. So what's happening here is that as Jesus comes in, all the people with their palms, and knowing their history, they're, they're essentially saying, Hail Jesus, our military deliverer has arrived Jesus, save us. Jesus, free us. They say, Hosanna, it says, verse 13. They took their branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The military deliverer is here. Hosanna, save us. It means save us. That quote, Hosanna, blessed is he who uh, comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, that's in quotations in the Bible because it's a quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says, save us. That's what Hosanna means. They say Hosanna, but it's the same thing. It means save us. And then the next line is from Psalm 118 as well. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the people added some words. As As they're welcoming Jesus, their military victor, they think, their military deliverer, rather, uh, they add something. Uh, Blessed is you, who comes in the name of the Lord? Yes, that's Psalm 118. Even the king of Israel. So they add that. They are recognizing that he is the king. So that's, that's, the, that's the setting. That's the place. That's, that's what sort of all the background that sets up the event. Let's look a minute at the king. They recognize that he is the Messiah. He uh, Even the king of Israel, they call him. They recognize him as the one who's in the line of David, the king that would come. But when they cry out to be saved, they're thinking what happened back with the Maccabees. When, they, when, they are, when they're crying out to be saved, they're asking Jesus to save them from Roman occupation of their land. Only God's king could do that. Only God could provide that kind of freedom for them. And now they believe that he has sent the one that will surely deliver them, the Messiah, the one they've waited for. And what's most convincing to them is that this Messiah has done a sign that only God's Messiah could do. And that sign wasn't multiplying bread and fish, though that, feeding people, though that's amazing. That sign wasn't healing someone, though that's amazing. That sign wasn't casting a demon out of someone, though that sign's amazing. The sign was that he raised Lazarus from the dead. This Messiah has the power to make dead people alive, and that's why everybody's tracking down, meeting Lazarus, finding out if it's true, and all gathering there, a buzz as the rumor spreads, the true rumor, spreads among them that he was raised from the dead. They're all there. He's done the sign of Messiah, and the people are overjoyed. I mean, in this moment, if Jesus had called everyone to arms, he could have started a revolution right now. The people were so celebratory and joyful that their king had come. But Jesus is not the kind of king they anticipated. Jesus is not the kind of king that they wanted. They have sort of projected their hopes and their dreams on Jesus They've formed their own conclusions about what God is doing. The crowd is gathered there. They have an agenda, but Jesus has a mission, and it's different than their agenda. Jesus' mission is to come into town and be handed over to the authorities and crucified and die, to be buried and then to be raised again. And hey, this is not the only time people had an agenda for God. Uh, I can relate to that on almost a daily basis, um, thinking God, you should do what I want. I, I know what would be best for my life. I know what would be best for those I love and and sometimes we pray, and God does answer those prayers. God is a prayer answering god, but god 's ways are not always our ways, and and God is not looking for us to put our agenda on him to sort of form him into our agenda and dictate to him what would be best to do in the world. Our God is sovereign. Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. He doesn't do whatever pleases you and me. He does whatever pleases him. And so like so many of us, they miss it. They are putting what they want on Jesus who has a very different plan You know, I remember being in a in a small group. I've I've been done this more than once, where a question was asked uh, to give an answer to share. Share a time um, where you made a prayer request to God, and now you're very thankful that God didn't answer your request. We all have those stories. For some of us, it was that person you were infatuated with at age 18 and prayed, age 25, whatever age, prayed that they'd be yours and that they indeed would be your spouse, that God would give them to you. And you look back now and say, did God spare me? And um, and uh, just realize they may be saying the same thing. But uh, <laughs> did God spare me, and I'm so thankful uh, that I'm single, or I'm so thankful that he provided a different spouse, whichever the case may be. So there are times when we <laughs> pray prayers and we look back and we go, I didn't know anything. I didn't know God's plan. I didn't know what was going to happen. They won a military battle. They don't know what's going to happen. And it's going to exceed what they what they're hoping for. They're right that Jesus is a king, but but what kind of a king is he? The text tells us what his mission as king is. Verse 15 says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is from Zechariah the prophet. It's Zechariah nine nine, and uh, it's prophesied about Jesus that he would come, and it says that when he comes, he would not come as a military victor or as a great powerful king with a lot big show, but he would come humbly, riding on a donkey. And this is humility. This is not military bravado. This is humility. <clears throat> I read a statement <clears throat> this last week from R.C. Sproul talking about why this was humility and what this would have even looked like for Jesus to ride on a donkey. This is what Sproul says. He says, The donkeys people ride in the Holy Land are nothing like the donkeys we breed in the United States. They're much smaller so that grown men have to bend their knees as they ride so that their feet don't hit the ground. The donkey Jesus rode, rode was of a small type. It was young, too. So instead of riding the steed of a military victor or of a king, Jesus entered Jerusalem on this lowly donkey, self-consciously identifying with the messianic prophecy that we find in the book of Zechariah. So that's it. Jesus is on this small donkey. He's riding probably legs up so that he doesn't hit the ground. A picture of humility, not regal glory. Verse 16 tells us that the disciples didn't even understand what's he doing. What, what's, what's going on here? But after he was glorified, that is, as, 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 that is after he was uh, resurrected, they remember, says verse 16, they remembered that this had been written about him and that this had been done to him. Now, often in the New Testament, when a verse is quoted from the Old Testament, um, perhaps not every time, but often the author has in mind the passage not just that verse, but what the whole passage is about. It's a reference to a, a section, uh, often, of Scripture. And that's probably what the case is here. And if we read the very next verses, so they quote, Fear not, daughter of Zion, okay, verse 15 in John here. They quote that, but here are the next two verses. Here's Zechariah 9, verses 10 and 11. They say, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nation. So the one who's coming in on a donkey, the king, here's what he's going to do. He's going to speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of the covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from this waterless pit. So he defines in that passage that they quote here, he defines... um, the, the, the ministry, the mission of the Messiah that he would send. He comes in humbly, riding on a donkey. Uh, he doesn't come with chariot. He's cut that off. He doesn't come with war horse. He's cut that off. He doesn't come with the bow for battle. He's cut that off, but he comes to speak peace to the nations. He doesn't just come to free national Israel at that time, but he comes to Speak peace to the nation so that all Jew and Gentile can hear the good news and to, can together be made part of God's new covenant in Jesus Christ. And you notice here he says, also because of the blood of my covenant, I will set prisoners free. That's a very powerful phrase that Jesus is going to use just a few days later at what we call the Last Supper, Um, where later in Holy Week, he's going to uh, celebrate the Passover with his disciples, and they're going to take the last, what he calls the Last Supper. He's going to redefine that meal and say, that meal pointed to me. I'm the fulfillment of that meal. And he's saying that here's the new covenant in my blood. There is a new covenant. It's no longer the blood of animals that is shed for redemption. But this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. A new covenant. A new commitment from me to you. A new binding agreement. I am binding myself to all who will believe in me. It's a new covenant. And so that's what Jesus is bringing. In the moment, nobody's pulled out their Zechariah 9 doing a little Bible study and thinking about all this. In the moment, they're thinking, Rome's going to get off our back. This is the military leader. This Messiah who can raise the dead is going to free us too. He's the humble servant king who comes to bring peace. Not what they were expecting. The king enters the city in humility Knowing that only a few days, in a few days, those who are crying Hosanna, in a few days they will be crying, crucify him, crucify him. Rather than defeat the enemies by force through battle, King Jesus defeats them by humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. The liberation he brings is not freedom from Roman rule. He doesn't give them that they remain under roman rule even after he's resurrected so he doesn't give them freedom from roman rule the liberation he brings is something much greater as as detestable as human oppression over other humans as detestable as that is, as difficult as that was for God's people to be in God's land with somebody else ruling over them, as difficult as that was, the liberation he brings is a much greater liberation. He's not going to bring political liberation. He's going to bring liberation from the power of sin, the power of death, the power of darkness. You see, there's something much worse than Roman uh, rule over the people of Israel, and that is the rule of sin and darkness that has been over all humankind since the fall in Eden. Since Adam and Eve fell, all of us have been born distant from God, dead to the things of the Spirit, blinded to the person of Jesus Christ. We're all born in sin, and we, we, are, we live with under the, the cloud, the dark cloud of death. And Jesus comes to defeat that, to break the power of sin, to forgive us for our sins, and also to give us the power of the Holy Spirit to say "No to sin and to say yes" to Jesus. And while we do die in this life, he breaks the power of death as well, with the promise that He will return and resurrect all who believe in Him and for eternal life in a new heaven and in a new earth. So he conquers sin, death, uh, and the grave. Their greatest problem is not Rome, their greatest problem is sin, death, and the grave. And that's what he frees them, anyone who believes in him, that's what he frees us from. So that's the king and his work, unexpected. Nobody saw that coming. The message is that his political strategy is to die as a sacrifice in the place of his people. His military strategy is to conquer death through the power of resurrection. And then after that, to be exalted to the right hand of God, to pour out his presence upon all believers on the day of Pentecost at another feast, the Feast of Pentecost, to pour out his presence, his Holy Spirit on all believers to actually indwell us, to come and live in us, to animate us with his power, to, to birth fruit in our lives, to make us like Jesus Christ, and, and then to send us with this good news, the message. So how does he bring peace, Zechariah 9, how does he bring peace to the nations? How does he declare peace to the nations? Well, it's through us. He saves the first people that hear the message of the gospel and sends them out, scatters them into the known world where they give testimony to what Jesus has done and people believe. And once people believe, they're baptized and then they're formed into little families or bigger families called congregations or churches. And then they send people to tell more people about Jesus Christ and they live their daily lives for his glory, declaring what he's done. This is his plan, to speak peace to the nations, not to come in with a sword, but to come in with an announcement of good news. And that's what's happening on this day. They expect something totally different. The reality is that he will come again. This was his first coming, but he will come again. And when he comes again, he will be on a war horse. The book of Revelation tells us that he will not show up Next time, on a humble donkey, legs suspended from the ground, he will come in with a sword of judgment on a horse, splitting the sky to to declare his rule and reign, to bring judgment and to punish eternally all of his enemies, those who have rejected him, those who have not embraced him as Lord, and then to welcome all those who have embraced him as Savior and Lord into a new heaven and into a new earth. But nobody sees that coming. We have to read on in the scripture to know that. The people are there because he raised Lazarus, and Jesus is therefore their hope for freedom, and nobody gets what's going on. The disciples, they don't get the donkey thing. What, what? They don't get that until after he's resurrected. The palm wavers, they don't, the people that are, I did that, not that palm, but those who are waving the palm branches, yeah, the people waving the palm branches, they don't get that this is not about Uh, you know, a a political or military coup or revolt, revolution. No one understands what's going on. And and in the great irony of it all, actually the Pharisees do the best at defining what Jesus is going to do. The the Pharisees are always on the wrong side of Jesus. They're always on the wrong side of history. They always say the wrong thing. But, But here the Pharisees are, including his disciples, they say, they may not intend it, but they they get right what's going on. They, they say, verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, they, they mean that by whole world, Jerusalem's filled with up to a million people, and everybody's excited to see Jesus and this miracle that he did and and call him king. They may be exaggerating, but, you know, it's just like, everybody's doing it. It's like, a teenager who wants to go out on Saturday night, everybody's going to be there. Well, not really everybody who's in, in the world, but, uh, you know, the, the, the people are going to be there. That's what, that's what this is. It doesn't mean everybody in the world, but it means a huge group of people in Jerusalem have gone out to see him. But they say the world, that, that the world is gone after him, and they don't know it, but that's actually true. That's actually what is going to happen. We are the world here. We are the ones who have been reached by the gospel going forth. And in the very next verses, we didn't read, but immediately after this, the whole world is gone after him. The next verse talks about Greeks coming to ask for an audience with Jesus. So the world, the Gentiles, are coming to him in the next verse, in the next verse of John's gospel. That's what is happening. Their claim is prophetic. He prophetic, he will reach the world in ways that no one can foresee. No one saw that. Coming. so how do we embrace this message like what's the message for us the palm sunday message i think there's a few applications of this passage one is to acknowledge that jesus was sent for more than me and more than we he sent for the world that, that's what was going on here the, the, the zechariah quote says that he will speak peace he will bring peace he will give peace to the nation's to the nations. He will, through Israel, through his people of the old covenant, he will now make a new covenant that will incorporate anyone who believes in his death and his resurrection, his royal rule, his lordship. He was sent on mission for the world, and if Jesus is sent on mission for the world, so are we. It means that the message of Good Friday and the message of Holy Week, indeed the message of all of Scripture, is about God reaching people in all the world for himself, to reach them, to bring them in, to tell them good news, that the darkness that they live under, that the sin which controls them, that the fear of death which dominates them, that the hopeless angst that they know in their soul, that there's an answer for that, and his name is Jesus And he has come to bring life. Listen, maybe you've never experienced this new life in Jesus. You don't have to wait to Good Friday, which is this Friday. We celebrate the crucifixion. Uh, You don't have to wait till next Sunday, Easter Sunday, which we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. I'm giving you a spoiler alert. That's what happens next in the story. But you can respond now and believe today you should believe today you should turn and and meet your maker meet the the savior who gave his life for you to today to acknowledge your sin that you need forgiveness of sins and you need new life you need new power in your life which comes from the holy spirit dwelling in you when you believe that's what happens the, the spirit of god gives you faith the spirit of god dwells in you and gives you new life. So you can come under his reign and experience this today by just acknowledging that, telling him you're sinful, telling him that you want forgiveness, telling him you believe he's the Lord and his death was for you and his resurrection gives you life and and that you want to commit your life to following him as Lord. You can just tell him that in your words and meet him today. We're all called to tell that good news to others. And, and I wonder, Caleb mentioned it earlier, but I wonder uh, who's in your circle of relationships that God's calling you to tell that peace has come? Who, who's in your circle of relationships? Who, who who could you invite this week to join us next week to, to, to hear the gospel and meet Jesus? We're praying that people will meet the Lord in the next seven days. And he's going to use Christians all over the city to reach out to people to fill churches, we pray. Pray that every church preaching the gospel is is filled next week. Hearing the good news of Jesus. I think another point from this passage is not only that he came for the nations and that he came to speak peace to the nations, Zechariah 9, 10, and 11, but I think it's also that Jesus is sent to do God's will and not mine. The people's will is overthrow Rome, do what Judas Maccabeus did. I mean, you're, you're actually way far greater. You're the Messiah, you resurrected Lazarus. So, so, so give us freedom. Jesus is sent to do God's will, not mine. You know, it is, it's really telling that in the rest of John, by the end of the week, these people who are crying, save us, will be crying out, crucify him. How does that happen? How do people turn that fast in a week? Well, I think it's simple. I think Jesus didn't do what they wanted. He wouldn't be the Messiah they wanted him to be. And he looked weak and got arrested and clearly wasn't going to overthrow the government at that point, wasn't going to rescue them. So they said, man, if you're not going to do that, they cheered in, kill him, kill him. He didn't do what they wanted. Jesus will not be ruled by the expectations of his people. And that just provides so much hope to us because what he wants to bring is so much greater. I mean, you can look at, I use the illustration of, you know, praying for a spouse or something perhaps that the Lord didn't give you or some other prayer request maybe he didn't answer and maybe you could be thankful for that now and seeing that. But that's the case here. If he had come in power and he had overthrown Rome and freed everybody and became their, their king, uh, we'd all be dead in our sins. We'd all be far from God. He came to bring us a greater freedom that he knew we needed and that's how gracious he is. So I just wonder um, how that lands on you. I mean, is there something in your life with all the suffering and loss that we experience, is there something in your life where you look today and you say, you know what, I need to trust God that his way is best. I think one of the strong points of Palm Sunday, one of the strong truths, rather, of Palm Sunday is that God has his will, not ours, and his will is infinitely better. See, what seems like bad news to you today, God's not doing what I want him to do in the timetable, on the timetable that I want him to do it. That's actually good news that God will do what God wants, and there's nothing better for your life. Than for God to do what He wants to do, He rules and reigns on His terms. And if He denied their request to overthrow Rome, which obviously He could have done, if He denied their request to overthrow Rome to give them something far greater—eternal life—then He will give you something far greater than than uh, than anything you could ask or think. Now we are to pray. God answers prayer powerfully. We are to pray. But if God doesn't answer our prayer in the way we we want, we worship him and confess that his way is greater, his timing is superior, his knowledge is infinite, and his love for you is greater than your love for yourself or your loved ones. He loved you enough to give his life on the cross. The last thing I want to say about the passage is that Jesus is sent to conquer uh, by death and resurrection to bring peace. And again, that stems from this quote from Zechariah that begins, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming on a donkey. That he that that king, Zechariah said, comes to bring peace for the nations. And we need that today. We need, well, we need peace for the nations, but we need peace for ourselves. There are some of us here today that you need the peace of God to rule and reign in your heart. That He comes into Holy Week, He suffers violence. He suffers hatred. He suffers torture. It's a violent week coming up, but he suffers all that to bring peace, to bring peace. He does that so that you could have peace with God, first of all, and that you could have peace with others. And there's some of us in the room today, we feel that, that we need the Prince of Peace, the King of Peace. Some of us need peace in our marriages today, or we need peace in a broken friendship, we need peace with our parents or peace with our children. We, we need peace with uh, estranged members of our family or friends. We need Some of us need peace because you woke up this morning thinking about a workplace conflict that's going on. And you need God to rule your heart with peace. And, and we pray that he brings peace to that, that situation. Some of us may even be involved in legal sort of wranglings And you need God, the King of Peace, to rule over you in this time. I want to challenge you this week to slow down and to enter into the narrative of Holy Week. And let's do that together. You may have a devotional reading plan where you read something every day. I'm not saying don't do that. But I would encourage you to supplement whatever you're reading. And if you don't have a regular reading plan, make this your reading plan this week. To read through the last week of Jesus' life. Now, we're in John 12, beginning in verse 12. You could just read the rest of John's gospel if you wanted this week. That's, what, eight chapters? Um, you could read a chapter or so a day. Um, and you'd finish the last week, you know, by next, next Sunday. Or you might want to read it out of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, in any of them. But I want to challenge you to read and look at two things. What do I see about those in the crowd and what do I see about Jesus And and where does that leave me? Listen, don't read the stories of Jesus and identify yourself with Jesus. Okay, that's not, he's the hero of the story, you're not. Uh, Identify with the crowds and realize if it wasn't for the grace of God, that's where you would be today, is in the crowds. The crowds that are rejecting, the crowds that are questioning, the crowds that are challenging. The crowds, they're yelling, crucify. Identify yourself in the story. And again, that's not Jesus. Well, you could identify yourself with one of the disciples who abandoned him altogether because we've all done that as well. Um, And then look at Jesus. What do I see about him? Where do I see the compassion of Christ? Where do I see the mercy of Jesus? Where do I see the wisdom of Christ answering his accusers brilliantly with flawless, perfect, eternal wisdom? Where do I see Jesus turning the other cheek? Where do I see Jesus sacrificing himself for me? And when I see myself in the crowd and I see him on the cross and then in the tomb and then coming out of the tomb, when I see that, I see everything. I see God's grace to me to make me new, to give me new life and new hope, and to give me power to follow him as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So let's do this. Let's walk through Holy Week together. um, And let's walk through the narrative of the Bible together. And let's show up next Sunday with a friend or family member on our arm. Uh, Let's show up Friday night uh, for for one of the services or Friday noon. um, And let's come back on Easter and let's celebrate what he's done uh, for us. We're going to close with communion so the band can, can join me. And I think it's powerful that this this last week of Jesus that God chose to come uh, to give his son over to death uh, at Passover. And Jesus, of course, uh, uses the imagery of Passover to give us a glimpse into what he's doing. And from the Palm Sunday passage in John 8, what we get, Jesus is doing a lot. But one insight we get there is that he comes offering himself, his body broken, his blood shed. He comes to bring peace. And so today as we receive the Lord's table, uh, I want us to celebrate the peace we have with God that is comes to us because he did his will and not the crowd's will. Praise God. And that our sins are forgiven and that the spirit of God dwells in us. He has given us new life. And so we want to celebrate that together through through communion. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.